I want to see them because <laughs> <My> leggings. <laughs> your leggings are great COVID leggings. <laughs> I got these from Marshalls. And the tag said that their retail was $98 and I got them for 11 <laughs> <laughs> I think you would like following Berta Hidalgo. I do follow her. Good. But see, her stuff is like chic. Yeah, she is chic. Running around with the Louis Vuitton bags and the Prada shoes and... <laughs> I'm just like, hey, J. Crew, woo! <laughs> Hello, shiny Epi friends. Welcome back to the show. I'm Lisa Bodner. I'm so happy that you're here. You can find our show on Instagram and Twitter at Shiny Epi People. I decided recently to start featuring shiny epi pets, that is, pets from epidemiologists who are on Instagram. So if you're on Instagram and you have a pet, direct message me and give me your details, what position you have and what you do in epidemiology. Thanks. Today, I'm speaking with Aisha Dickerson. Aisha is an environmental and neuroepidemiologist. She's interested in combined environmental and occupational exposures to metals over the life course and their contribution to individual and transgenerational neurological outcomes like autism spectrum disorder and dementia. Aisha has an incredibly interesting path to her current position as assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Aisha tells me how she went from undergrad at the University of Alabama, where she was the school's mascot. I'm not joking. That's actually too amazing to joke about. Then how she got rejected when she applied to her MSPH program and convinced admissions to let her in anyway. She also talks about her choices after that to find postdocs that fit. Her story is one of tenacity, risk-taking, confidence, and imposter syndrome all wrapped up into one. I hope you enjoy this chat. Aisha, welcome to the show. Yeah, no problem. You know, like I said, I'm always just sitting here doing a little on Saturdays. I usually watch baking shows. And So what do you watch? Uh, with the great British baking show, Sugar Rush, Nailed It. And <laughs> <laughs> you watch Nailed It? I love Nailed It because I think I would perform well on that show because I, most of my <laughs> desserts taste good, but they don't look good. Then yeah, I think it's okay. It doesn't have to be pretty. I thought that the people on Nailed It didn't even make good tasting desserts. I well, thought they that don't. their desserts were ugly and they tasted <laughs> gross. Well, no, that's true. That's true. And so that's probably why they never actually let me on the show. I mean, I've, <laughs> I have put in applications and auditioned for a lot of different TV shows. And, okay, and I think what? I'm just too normal. And so nobody ever really wants me. Nobody wants somebody as normal as me. <laughs> so which ones have you applied to be on? Uh, I have tried out, gotten to the second rounds for Family Feud. So that was with my family. We did that. And then why didn't they select you? You guys just like weren't fun enough? My mother is not a very fun person. And so... <laughs> Uh, in my mind, I honestly think it was because she was on the team and she wasn't very fun. But I don't want to blame it on her. So there's that. What else did I do? Um, 
Wheel of Fortune. <gasps> That's another one. Oh, um, Love Connection. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> Don't skip over that one. Uh, well, tell they, me what Love Connection is. So, you know, they had the show in the 80s and they did a revamp. So it's where they pick a person and they set them up on three dates. <laughs> Based on those three dates, they have to pick the best person out of the three. Yeah. And again, I think I was just too normal. When I got the audition, I thought, honestly, maybe they just went like the sexy nerd kind of <laughs> character. <Yeah. laughs> what did you wear? Were you like the sexy nerd? Well, I wore something low cut. It was a like a green silk <laughs> wrap shirt. And, nice. But even then, I like I I don't. You can see my face now. I don't really do a lot of makeup, just some mascara and some lipstick. So I probably... You look lovely. Well, thank you. But, you know, I think they want ladies who put on false eyelashes. So <laughs> did you, quote, audition? Uh, it was an interview. I had to interview with the producers. Oh, wow. So what did they ask you? Uh, what kind of guys am I interested in? Uh-huh. Do I have any deal breakers? All of that kind <laughs> of stuff. Do you have any deal breakers? Smoking and married. Um, I don't do married. (laughs) It might not be a deal breaker for us. It's not. You would be surprised. Like how many people that's not a deal breaker for. But I'm no home wrecker. (laughs) I mean, how would they know that you're boring if you felt that that was your downfall? (laughs) Not boring. I'm sorry. You said normal. Normal. (laughs) Sorry, I said you know they were asking me what kind of hobbies I had and at the time I had just gotten out of and this is going to sound crazy pole fitness what oh you mean like, like dancing, pole dancing on yes, a pole on a pole but not like not in a sexual way <laughs> I think they got kind of upset because they were like sending some pictures of you pole dancing and I was like nope <laughs> So, <laughs> well, they asked me what what was my favorite body part on a guy. I thought, oh, oh my god, <laughs> doesn't that seem like? Well, I guess it's not really a strange question because you know some people are like arms and oh, I like a guy with a nice smile. And I, oh, to be honest, I like a guy with a nice ass. That's what I like. It's just a <laughs> nice ass. And <laughs> oh my god, I love that. Uh, it was my last ditch effort to just <laughs> go on a date. <laughs> I was like, you know, when, you, when you get to this point in life, it's like, oh, I've tried this. You know, I've tried online dating and I tried to meet people out in public. And so, you know, let's venture out outside the box. Let's, let's try it. And I've been on TV before, but not on a game show. I was on a... Uh, show that used to be hosted by Bill Bellamy. It was called um, Who Got Jokes? And so they have these amateur comedians and they pick <laughs> three people from the audience to judge. And uh-huh. I gave my feedback and my feedback, as it is with most things, is very honest. <laughs> and I think they really like that. So they keep playing that episode so you can see the honest little girl with the strong Southern accent tell a comedian that he was only mildly funny and that maybe he ought to consider another career. (laughs) (laughs) 
when we first connected, one of the things that you wanted to talk about was what you called a long and complicated professional path. Mm. I started college at 17. So when I got away from my parents, I was like, yeah, party. <laughs> so... <laughs> Plus, you know, I was involved in a bunch of extracurricular activities. Yeah, what did you do? Well, I had my sorority, a.k.a. That's the same sorority that Kamala Harris is a part of. And then my my sophomore year, I became the mascot. So that was... (laughs) Okay, I need to hear about this now. You were at UAB. Oh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. UAB. Go Blazers. (laughs) And the mascot is the dragon blaze. So it's like a big green carpet costume. (laughs) That sounds heavy. It is. It was very heavy. Like I had a bruise on my forehead from where the (laughs) the head had a helmet on the inside. And then I had a bruise on my clavicle because it had wings. Blaze has wings because he's a (laughs) dragon. And I was really skinny back then, like 108 Uh pounds or something. So it was hard to carry that costume. I actually got lift in Kentucky one time because I had to carry my own <laughs> costume. Now, and this is the, the thing that gets me is that there were male cheerleaders that could have helped me and they were like, uh, mascot, whatever. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I had to carry my own costume and am I trying to drag it to the bus? The bus left me behind. How can you leave without the mascot? Because uh, I was just a nobody to them, I guess. I don't oh. know. <laughs> But you were just as important as anyone else. I was more important than all the rest of them. (laughs) What was your mascot shtick? Well, I was going to be on the dance team. The mascot got like a little scholarship that was twice as much as the cheerleaders and the dance team. And when we would travel, all the cheerleaders and dance team had to stay two to four to each room. As the mascot, I got a whole suite because I had to take the costume with me everywhere that I went. (laughs) So That seems yeah. like a racket. Okay. <laughs> On the very first football game, they used to have Blaze. Again, I say Blaze like everybody knows this. Blaze would come out <laughs> on a golf cart holding the flag as the, the team came in, right? But this year, they decided that this is my first game, that instead of riding the golf cart, I should run with the flag across oh. the field. With the football team, you know, in a green carpet costume in Alabama heat. So. <laughs> like you were leading the football team right. out, out on the field. the field. Yeah, that's when they figured out something was wrong. So I was supposed to. <laughs> I was supposed to lead them out, but maybe halfway down the field where they were about to do the coin toss, I became a little delirious and started running into the referee. And <laughs> And started stumbling around. And then as the football players were running past me, that's when somebody thought, hey, she stopped running. Well, is she okay? And somebody asked me if I was okay. Now, one of the main mascot rules was that you couldn't talk in the mask in the costume. So I was just kind of flailing around and I couldn't say, no, I'm not all right. But I was just shaking the big mascot head trying to tell somebody I wasn't okay. Like, I'm not okay. Why didn't you just like break the the, the vow of silence? I, I didn't want to, to, you know, traumatize any children that might be able to hear me from a distance. Okay. <laughs> they had right. to believe that Blaze was real. That's right. <laughs> So then they scooped me up, the the male cheerleaders, and took me to 
to the locker room. They they ripped the costume off of me and they covered my body in these ice packs. Okay, so did they have an understudy? Yeah, I had two two like understudies. There were three of us. It was me and then two uh two younger, less less experienced. <laughs> <laughs> so good oh my gosh I never thought when we started talking that it would be like this you are cracking me up kind of blowing my mind I really really like this so after undergrad I worked for a, a science museum for four years Mm. It was McWayne Science Center, and I was the outreach coordinator. So I would go out to schools and do these big programs. In addition to working for that science museum, I did the AmeriCorps program. And as a part of that, I had to do in-home therapy for children with autism and respite care for their families. So after each of those sessions, the parents always wanted to talk. And they would give me this laundry list of why they thought their children had autism. And I thought, you know what, I can go and get a degree to figure out why kids get autism. And so that's how I got into epidemiology. And so I applied for the MSPH program at UAB and they saw my grades and were like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't let me in. At that point, I knew what I wanted to do. So I put on a, a suit and I went up to the admissions office and I explained to them, you know, I've been thinking about this. It took me a long time to come to this decision. So just let me in. Like, I, I promise I'll maintain like a 3.75 GPA. And, and if I drop below that, then you could just put me out the program. So they said, OK, well, we'll let you start taking really? classes. Yeah, they let me do it. Now, I wasn't officially enrolled as part of the cohort until maybe my spring semester. So I took classes that summer and that fall. And then once I was able to prove to them that I wasn't a total dummy, then they officially enrolled me in the program. So how did you convince them? Uh, well, you know, there were some tears. and <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I am never above using tears. <laughs> there were some tears of just a very passionate plea. And they probably thought if she has enough initiative to come up here and ask, then, yeah. you know, and, and the other thing I told them is I'll be playing for these classes myself. It's not like you're coming out of pocket. If I fail, then you got my money. So just let me try it out. Okay. And it worked. And I kept my grades up so high to the point that when I graduated, I got this nice little email that said, hey, you know, you're at the top of the class. Would you like to carry the flag at graduation? So I got to That's carry amazing. the flag. Yeah. So then what? So then I worked at the health department for a couple of years. Mm. And uh, what I learned at the health department is that I could only do what I was told. So I thought maybe I should get a PhD so I could do that autism research that I went back to school for. And uh, the way I decided where to go is I just Googled environmental exposures, autism research. And the first name that came up was Mohammed Hossein Rabar at the University of Texas. So I sent him an email with a copy of my master's thesis. And I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And I want to work with you on these projects so that you can teach me how to research environmental exposures and autism. Are you taking students? And he said, sure. So I applied. That was the only school I applied to. And did you get to do the research that you wanted to do during that time? Yeah, I did so much research. It was a good decision. 
And the funny part is I had other students in the program that had other mentors that were just in school there because they wanted to be in school there, but they didn't necessarily research their mentors and what they were doing. So yeah. they weren't as productive with their research. What happened after the PhD? So I, I sent an email to Mark Weiskopf and I had met him at different conferences. I sent him an email saying, hey, are you taking postdocs? And he was like, yeah, come visit Harvard and and give a talk. Now, let me also say, I, I didn't realize he was, I mean, I knew he was at Harvard, but in my mind, I just wanted to work with Mark. I didn't care if he was at the University of South Florida or UNC, wherever he was, but he said, come and visit Harvard. I had no idea where Harvard was, which I think blows people's minds. They're like, how do you not know where Harvard is? It's Harvard. How do you not know where Harvard is? And I'm like, I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. Like growing up, do you want to go to Alabama or Auburn or maybe LSU or or the University of Florida? People really wanted to go to SEC schools. Nobody was thinking, let me go to Harvard. And plus, you know, Boston is cold and expensive in the South. We're like, uh, no, thank you. So I went up there to visit him, gave the talk and looked for housing. And then I came back a few months later and moved up there. So that's how I ended up with, with Mark at Harvard. Stayed there for three years. You told me before that you kind of had this imposter syndrome taking this faculty position at Hopkins. Yeah, that's that's true. So thinking about when I started applying again during my third year of my postdoc, I had already had so many rejection letters. Mm. Like I could pull up a file from all the faculty positions that I applied for. And like that was when you were really? asking for questions for Tim yeah. Lash, one of the questions I wanted to ask him is, why didn't you give me that job at Emory? <laughs> like, I, was, <laughs> I was perfect. Like I felt like I was I I performed well and when I didn't get that when I was yeah. just like it's I was done. I didn't want to apply for any more positions. And then Mark said to me when I was sitting in his office crying about it, because again, I'm used to failure, but that one really kind of hurt me. And mm-hmm. Mark said, you know, it's not always about being the best, it's about what they want. And if yeah. what you do is not what they want, then it doesn't matter if you were the best. So when I saw the announcement for Hopkins, I didn't apply. And then one of my old friends from UAB said, oh, you ought to apply for this job at Hopkins. It looks like it fits you. And I said, well, I don't I don't think they're going to pick me because, you know, it's Hopkins. They're number one in the U.S. Now, <laughs> let's mm-hmm. disregard the fact that I was doing a postdoc at Harvard. And I was just like, I'm not yeah. good enough for Hopkins. But uh, I just kind of reworked the applications that I had and submitted it anyway on a whim. And it was I just submitted it and forgot about it. And when they called, I was like, really? You want to yeah. talk to me? <laughs> So when the interview went well and I got the job, I was really surprised. But the funny part is that even after I got it, my parents were like, well, what about UAB? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So why is it a good fit for you? They're just doing things that I want to be doing. Everything just fit. I had a whole plan as far as what I could do. When I came to Hopkins, and so when I got there, I just hit the ground running. Like, I started submitting proposals within three or four months. I had stuff set up and things that I could do. So it was easy. It was so much easier. My biggest fear about going into academia was that I wouldn't be good at writing grant proposals. 
Yeah. And once I got there, I realized, hey, maybe I'm not so bad at this because I have the help that I need to get it done right. So it's, it's important to have the support and to have the collaborators. And people are nice. And did they assign you a mentor at Hopkins? And I have a departmental mentor who is Michael Clagg. So I chose him because they said I could have anybody. And I said, well, he used to be the dean and I want to be a dean mm-hmm. one day. So I want Do him to you? Yeah. <laughs> I want to be the boss. You know, I'm going to go back to Emory and I'm going to be the dean at Emory. <laughs> Fire Tim Lash's ass. <laughs> That's the plan. Okay. <laughs> so I rub my hands together. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, That's so great. Mike Clegg is teaching me how to dean. He's telling me all the all the wow. little steps I need to take now and what I need to do to become a dean somewhere. You're an assistant professor, Aisha. You're ready to start thinking about that? I just I want to know the steps so that I don't accidentally miss something, but I know that I do eventually want to be a dean of a school of public health because I know how I I feel like I could improve upon a lot of things Mm -hmm. that I have seen. Now, do I know how to do those things yet? No, but that's what Mike Clagg is teaching me. How did you learn how to write a grant well if you didn't have the experience leading up to that? Oh, well, my PhD advisor used to always make me write a first run through of different sections of his grants. And of course, he would destroy it later. But his thing was I needed to practice, even with writing manuscripts. Like I know a lot of students have trouble writing discussion sections. And the only way to get good at it is to practice. And so that's what I remember the first time he made me write a discussion section that was also one of the crying sessions I had in his office. It was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Why are you making me do this? <laughs> Just let me do the analysis and write the methods and the results. <laughs> it's so hard in the beginning, isn't it? And he was like, no, you have to do it. Like my academic father, you have to do it to learn. You have to do it. Yeah. So we did. And of course, the first few times it was really bad. But once I got it. Now it's like discussion yeah. paper bloop done. Nice. Well, there are lots of tears through it. Lots of tears. <laughs> I still have lots of tears. <laughs> 20 years later, lots of tears. Can you think of what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, the very best piece of advice. And I say this to students all the time to the point that they think it's something I came up with, but it's not. Roberta Ness, who used to be the dean at the University of Texas, I was working with her on one of her books. And so I would draft all of this stuff and and she'd give me her comments and it would be so bad that I wouldn't come back to it for months. And she would mm-hmm. say, well, Aisha, are you done yet? And I would say, no, you know, I hadn't gone through it. I'm still trying to, you know, get over all of this red. And one day she said, well, Aisha, if you're going to stay in academia, you just need to get used to failure. Just mm-hmm. <laughs> get to the point where you hit that failure and you just, keep working through it. Like you can't sit up there and dwell on stuff all of the time. You have a twin sister. Oh yeah. Well, her name is Aisha and we basically have the exact same name, middle name and all, except that my name is A-I-S-H-A and she's A-S-H-A. Aisha and Aisha. Mm -hmm. Got it. 
Yeah. Okay. And uh, she, her PhD is in counseling education. She is a, well, she does drug rehab therapy. I thought you were going to say she does drugs. (laughs) Not that I know of. (laughs) I was like, yo, I don't know that she wants people to know that. Okay. (laughs) I feel like because we're twins and we've been constantly competing with each other from the womb on. It makes it a lot easier for me to compete with the rest of the world. <laughs> so she has uh, two daughters, and they're my nieces. And then when people say, "Why do you need? Why don't you want kids?" I say, "I don't need kids. I have nieces. Yeah, and I can just give them back when I get ready. Right. <laughs> but I can spend my money on showering them with nice things instead of stuff like that they need, like food and clothes." <laughs> What's your favorite book or movie? Uh, my favorite book right now is this book that I'm reading by uh, John Lewis called Across the Bridge. Just all about basically techniques for trying to create change. And I had to buy a new version because I had an autographed version that's at my mother's house. No way! Oh yeah. Wow. I mean, I met John Lewis a few times. My godfather was a freedom writer, and so he Mm. knew him very well. So it was just kind of around. Benefits of being from Montgomery, Alabama. Sweet or savory? Oh, sweet. I have a big sweet tooth. I can eat half a cake instead of dinner for three days. That would make me happy. (laughs) What's your favorite kind of cake? Uh, Red velvet. Red velvet is my... And next to that is carrot cake. And I point that out because that's one of the things that my PhD advisor used to bribe me with. Especially if I knew I was in trouble and I was avoiding him. Then he would say, hey, Asti, this is why Asti made you a carrot cake. And I say, okay, so that comes stand in the doorway. And he's like, come on in, come in the office. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I don't want to. I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> Can't have the cake unless you come in the office. <laughs> okay, I hope the people who are listening... <laughs> Anyone who wants to bribe you, it's with it's with carrot cake. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite pop tart flavor? You know, I've heard you ask that ask pop tart questions, and I, yeah. honestly, I don't like pop tarts. I was always more of a toaster strudel kind of kid. Okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Toaster strudel, mm-hmm. fair. This was so wonderful to get to know you. You are a crack up. Thank you. Thanks for taking time to do this, Aisha. This was such a pleasure. Well, thanks for inviting me. your podcast I was thinking man if I met her previously we'd probably be friends but now we can be from here on out yeah that's true you know when COVID is over I'll meet you in person I don't know where though because I don't do SER except well the few times I've been to SER I just hang out in the lobby and make fun of people (laughs) so (laughs) 